Well, as we approach the season of Lent, that's a fitting video to help set our, our hearts and thoughts towards our Lord Jesus and his, his suffering. And yet, even on the darkest night when Judas betrayed him, we see how he was still completely in control. He was in charge. Nothing was happening outside of the Father's will. And he was humble and, and submitted himself fully to that will. And we're here today because of it. As we prepare now to enter God's word, would you bow with me once more? Lord Jesus, we thank you that, as we were just reminded, that the price that you paid for our salvation was a high one. And even in the, the darkest night of your betrayal, that then you were in control. That though to the, the disciples it seemed chaotic and fearful, that you had completely submitted yourself to the Father's will. And in that garden you prayed, not my will, but thine be done. And we thank you that that made all the difference and that you saw it through. The price had to be paid. Your blood had to be shed. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God to take the sins of the world upon yourself. And we thank you, Lord, that that is why we are gathered here this morning in the reality of what you did for us, that you've taken our sins upon yourself and that all we must do is place our faith in you to have our sins forgiven, to even more be adopted as children, as the heavenly King, to have your spirit indwell our hearts through faith. Thank you that you did that all for us. And so this morning, Lord, we pray that in the reality of this, that each one of us, as we've gathered this morning, coming from different places, different circumstances, and yet, Lord, you are the same. And so your, your word is for each one of us. And so by your spirit, I pray, translate it to each one of our hearts today, each one of our circumstances. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name. Amen. So today we are continuing on in our series entitled Spiritual Warfare. And we will be looking at the third piece of the armor of God, which is the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now this first slide I'm going to show you this morning uh, is a picture that was taken from a massive traffic accident pileup that happened on the Trans-Canada Highway this past week on Thursday right near Verdon. Did, it, did all of you hear about this that happened? So, so here is a picture of the mayhem that ensued from this pileup. The RCMP says that approximately 20 semi-trucks and five passenger vehicles were involved in this Pile up this series of collisions that took place. Three people were injured and taken to hospital, but thankfully there were no life-threatening injuries and, and no fatalities. So as we look at this picture of this mayhem, the question, of course, is what was the cause of this pileup? How could there be 25 vehicles all pile up like this? What was the reason? Does anyone want to venture a guess at the reason? Icy roads, right? Very icy roads. Was anyone out driving on these icy roads at any point in the past week? I think I know a few of you were. Some of you maybe not so wisely braved these icy roads if you didn't have to. But we know that icy roads can cause all sorts of, of issues for vehicles as they travel on them. And here's, you know, an extreme case of what can happen. And it's no exaggeration to call it a skating rink. In fact, this next picture, I think some of you will have seen it. The Winnipeg Free Press printed this last week that uh, here is a picture of a lady literally skating down a highway. 
Now, her name is Haley Gardham, and as you can see, she has a long, clear stretch of ice. She could skate to her heart's content as long and as far as she wanted to on this thick layer of ice. Now, on ice like this, as you know, if you have any experience driving whatsoever, that conditions this bad, even winter tires might not be enough to keep you on the road. Anything less than studded tires probably is not good enough. Well, in much the same way, today we're going to look at the issue of traction. Now, in this piece of armor of God that we're, that we're looking at now, it's about our footwear, which provides us with our traction. And so, of course, the example is the soldier's footwear. And in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes this, "...with your feet fitted with the preparation of the gospel of peace." Your feet fitted with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in this next picture, you'll see an image of, of a soldier and the highlighted part being of his footwear, as we're going to dig into it in just a moment. Now, before we focus on the Roman soldier's actual footwear, we need to understand what Paul is talking about when he says the gospel of peace. So what exactly is Paul talking about when he says the gospel of peace? Well, our English word for gospel is translated from the Greek word evangelion, which literally means good news. So this word evangelion is also the word we use for evangelism. So good news, evangelism, gospel. It's all talking about the same thing. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, during his ministry on earth, Jesus himself made multiple references to this gospel message. One of those is in Mark chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15, which says this. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus himself said, Repent and and believe the gospel. So when Paul says here, the gospel of peace, he is referring to this same gospel that we need to repent of our sins and believe in. And so he simply places the emphasis in speaking about this same gospel that Jesus came and declared. He's placing the emphasis on the gospel of peace, meaning that when we have repented and believed we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So elsewhere in Scripture we read that he came and preached peace to those who were near and to those who were a long way off. He himself is our peace, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So here Paul is emphasizing the gospel of peace, that through the gospel we have peace with God through Christ. And so... What is now, as we add on the whole phrase, the preparation of the gospel of peace? So what is this preparation that Paul is talking about? Well, in the original Greek, the word used there for preparation carries a twofold meaning. The first meaning is foundation, and the second meaning is readiness. So we, we combine those two here in the context that the preparation is referring to a foundation as well as readiness. So in context, 
Having your feet fitted with the preparation of the gospel of peace means that once you have repented and believed the gospel, you have now put the gospel shoes on, so to speak. It gives us these two things. It gives us the first being a firm foundation or footing for our lives, which gives us traction. It means that we will not slip or trip no matter what conditions are in the world around us. So that's the first thing, that the readiness, the preparation is the foundation of our lives. It gives us traction so that unlike that pileup we saw earlier, we're going to stay on the road. We're not going to slip. We're not going to crash. The second meaning is that we are now prepared. We are ready with having those gospel shoes on. We are prepared and ready to now carry or bring the gospel message with us wherever we go. So every step that we take, we are carrying the gospel of peace with us. So in this sense, we are all messengers that our lives first, we we have believed the gospel, the gospel of peace is ours, but now as we walk, every step we take with these gospel shoes on, we are carrying this good news with us. And so in this sense, we are messengers. So to summarize all of that, I will say that putting on the shoes of the gospel gives us both stability and mobility. Stability and mobility. So let's focus our attention on the first, stability or traction. Now you may recall from part four four earlier in our series that back in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 10 to 14, Paul begins this whole section on the armor of God by placing the primary emphasis on standing firm against the devil's schemes. In fact, he uses the heightened tense to say that the most important part of this passage in Ephesians is not about the armor itself, it's about standing firm. And that the armor is what God has given us so that we can stand firm against the devil's schemes. So while all of the various pieces of armor work together, and we have to put all of them on to keep us from slipping and falling, the the argument could be made that when we look at all of these different pieces of armor, we, we need all of them. So it's not to diminish one or heighten the other. But the argument could be made that no piece of this armor is more important than the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now, that may seem a little bit odd, because we don't typically think of our shoes or footwear, or even when we look at the soldier, as that being a piece of armor, right? When we think of armor, we think, of course, of the the breastplate, that's armor, it's actually got metal plates. We think of the shield, of course, that's armor, it's metal. We think of the helmet, you know, the, the things that, that is the armor. But for a soldier, those shoes, those boots, as it were, are every bit as vital to his success in battle as any other piece that he is wearing. In fact, perhaps even more so. Now, the fact is that when it comes to standing your ground, the only part of that equipment that makes contact with the ground is the bottom of his shoes. Right? As you look at that soldier, he's standing there. The only point of contact with the ground are those shoes. They're the only thing that is going to enable him to stand. If those shoes are not up for the task of him standing in battle, he will lose the traction, he will slip, and he will go down. And so, to emphasize the importance of these gospel shoes, we, we can't just say, oh, it's one of the lesser pieces, right? 
I remember when I was a kid and we looked at the armor of God, I'd always be, you know, the shield, the sword, those were the cool pieces. The shoes was an afterthought, right? But I want to just heighten for you the importance of these shoes because they are needed for both defense to stand firm against the enemy's attacks and also for offense so that he can then advance against the enemy as he moves forward. Now, the Roman soldier's footwear, let's get into it in some detail now. These are no ordinary shoes or sandals. Sometimes in different, you know, children's storybooks or even in, in dramatizations of the life of Christ, we see them wearing these little flimsy uh, strap sandals. That's not what they actually wore. These were specialized footwear crafted by the Roman army that they would supply to their legions to make sure that they had the best footwear possible for battle. They were made out of both leather and brass and were primarily composed of two parts. The first part was called the greave, and the second was the shoe itself. Now, the greave was the upper part that we see highlighted in this picture. The greave was a piece of beautifully tooled metal that began at the top of the knee, and it extended down past uh, the shin, right down to the lower leg around the ankles. Now, the shoe... And the sole of the shoe was made of layers of metal and leather. And on the top and side, the foot was covered with a fine piece of brass, which was held together by multiple pieces of durable leather. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. So we see that, that the, the uppers are armored, they're made out of brass, and many of them would be very ornately designed with, with the finest craftsmanship available, especially for officers. So we, we see the protection it provides for the shin and for the, the top of the foot. But now the bottom is where it's most important because this is about the traction. On the bottom of the soldier's shoes were affixed deadly sharp spikes, often called hobnails. Now these hobnails could be between one to three inches long. So if you've ever worn, let's say, baseball cleats, metal cleats or spikes, that's kind of a picture I want you to have in your mind, that these are sharp, they are designed to dig into the ground so that no one's pushing you around. You have traction no matter what kind of soil or terrain you're on. And so in ancient battle, most of the combat was done in, in hand-to-hand combat in very close formations. And so, as we talked about in part one of this series, the the Romans were experts in using their shields to form shield walls. And they would have different formations to both protect on defense, but also to push forward on offense. And they would link their shields together. But the power of the shield wall is in the traction on the feet. Now, if any of you have ever played football or contact football, you know how important traction is. Now, if you've been up on the offensive or defensive line, This is as close as probably most of us have had experience to this sort of battle. If you don't have good traction, if you don't have cleats on, you're just wearing, you know, street shoes that are even just flat bottom shoes, you're going to get pushed around even by a smaller opponent. But if you have good traction up on that line, you're going to be able to hold your ground and push forward. And that's what the soldiers did with these shield walls. The Romans would have the spikes on their shoes. They'd be linked up. And so when the commander shouted, push, they could bodily push into the lines of the enemy, shoving them back, causing them to lose their footing. 
And you know what? Where most of the killing took place in ancient battle was not when both shield walls were intact. It was when one side went down. When one side went down or they broke rank or they fell, that is when soldiers died because now they are vulnerable for the, the thrust of the sword. And yes, even brutally, those three-inch spikes would also be used for dispatching opponents that were on the ground. As you went by, a boot would often be administered to fallen or downed opponents. So these shoes, don't think of them as an afterthought. These are vital and, yes, even lethal in ancient combat that the Romans engaged in. These gave them a tremendous advantage over their ill or lesser equipped foes who did not have the same traction that they had. Now, to summarize, a soldier who cannot stand cannot fight. A soldier who cannot stand cannot win. As G.K. Chesterton once wrote, there are an infinity of angles at which one can fall down but only one at which one can stand their ground. There are an infinite number of ways that you can fall, but only one angle at which you can stand, and that is upright. And so spiritually speaking, the first thing that having your feet fitted with the preparation of the gospel of peace gives to us is stability, is traction, the ability to hold fast, stand our ground, and not fall. So let me ask you this. In this spiritual battle that we've been looking at for the last number of weeks, in this spiritual battle that each one of us is engaged in as soldiers of Christ, how important is it that we have the stability and traction required to stand firm? How important is it that we don't fall down? Well, I'd say it's not only important, but it's vital. Because if we've fallen, if we're on the ground, not only are we no threat to the enemy, but we are vulnerable to being dispatched, as I, as I shared earlier, what happens in battle. When we fall, when, when the soldiers go down, that is when they are most likely to be killed and destroyed and trampled underfoot. Because in this spiritual battle, we must recognize, as, as we saw earlier, we, we don't underestimate our opponents. Satan is far, far more powerful than any one of us individually on our own strength. And again, the, the, the vital importance of leaning into the, to the Lord's strength. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But even so, Satan is going to do everything in his formidable power and will. And he will use every one of his many devious schemes to get us to slip, to lose our footing, and to fall. And when we've fallen to cause as much damage to you and to others as he possibly can. That is his intent. Make no mistake about it. The thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy. That is his aim. And he will do everything he can to achieve it. Now, in Psalm 73 and verse 2, the psalmist wrote this. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my footing. Now, no one is immune from this happening to them. For as Paul himself writes in Ephesians 6 and verse 13, Therefore put on the armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Now, the day of evil is coming. 
Because you see, it is not an if, it is a when. Paul says not if the day of evil comes, he says when the day of evil comes. A follower of Christ, a soldier of the cross, has to assume that days of evil are coming in their life at some point or another. They are inevitable. Those days where Satan is going to throw his very worst at us, trying to get us to go down. Now, we can read about just such a day of evil happening in the life of the great King David. David, of course, wrote most of the Psalms. He was a great man of of worship and passion and love for the Lord. He was called a man after God's own heart. And so we put him up as a a great example of of faithfulness and, and service and devotion to the Lord. And yet, despite David's close relationship to the Lord... We know that one fateful night, he went out into battle unprepared. And so from high up on his palace wall, he looked down and he spotted the beautiful Bathsheba bathing down below. But rather than standing his ground, by turning his eyes away as as Joseph had done with Potiphar's wife. Remember that story, the, the antithesis to this story. Joseph shows us a good example of where Potiphar's wife, she's, she's making advances against him persistently, repetitively, and Joseph turned away. He turned away until finally he ran away. But here we see David. He sees this beautiful woman. He, his heart is, is filled with desire for her, and rather than turning away, he lingers. He looks, and he allows that desire to conceive into a sinful plot within his heart. He summons for her. And in that moment, just like that 25-vehicle pileup that we saw earlier, David's one slip with lust set off a chain reaction of events. It led to adultery, which led to further deceit, which finally led to David ordering the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. And though David did eventually repent after being confronted by the prophet Nathan, The consequences for not only David, but his entire family and the entire nation were still devastating, devastating. And many, many more people died as a result of David's one slip that fateful night. So do not make the mistake of David and let your guard down. Perhaps thinking that the day of evil will never come your way. Perhaps thinking that it's an if rather than a when. Recognize that those days will come where you will feel the full force of the enemy's assault against you. And I know as I look out over the congregation today that there are many of you present here who have been following Christ for many, many years and you already know that this is true because you have already faced such days of evil where you have felt the full attack of Satan against you in some way, shape, or form. But here's the good news, is that here you are, here you stand, a living, breathing testimony to the truth that when you have your feet fitted with the gospel of peace, that no matter what the devil has thrown your way, you have the firm footing and the stability, the traction required to not slip, but to stand your ground. And even further, just like David, those days where you you felt that attack And you did slip and you did fall, but here you stand yet again, just like David, an object of God's grace. Because through repentance, you received his his mercy and his grace 
and you've been restored just as David was restored. And yes, you still have to deal with the consequences, but praise the Lord. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so here you stand again, a living testimony of the gospel of grace at work in your life. And so, we must remember, these shoes are not an afterthought. They are vitally important for every believer, every soldier of Christ. For it is through this gospel that our ultimate victory will come. As Romans 16 and verse 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Now take note of the connection here, that it is the God of peace who will soon crush Satan underneath our feet, which are fitted with the gospel of peace. Isn't that interesting? The God of peace will crush Satan underneath our feet, which are shod, fitted with the gospel of peace. And yes, the gospel of peace has three-inch spikes sticking out of it, doesn't it? They are what will crush Satan ultimately underneath his feet. And remember who else took three-inch spikes? It was the Lord Jesus. These things all tie together. The gospel, this is our victory. This is what will triumph over Satan in the end. This is what will, yes, crush his head. And as we fit our feet with the gospel of peace, we go out with traction, with stability, that we can stand our ground. Now let's switch our focus from stability to the second, which is mobility. Now Caesar, when he sent out his legions, he wanted his soldiers to have proper shoes so that they could not only hold their ground, but more importantly, he wanted them to take ground. Remember, Rome was all about expansion. They weren't just in a defensive posture. They went out. They took ground. They conquered. And so you see, as soldiers of Christ, we are not only called to hunker down, to grit our teeth and to hold on desperately because Satan's too powerful for us. No, we are told to go. Like a marching army, we are to go out into the world, not with the weapons of the world, but with the gospel. And so we march out courageously forward, bringing that good news of the gospel, yes, into Satan's territory, into his dark realm, which is wherever people remain deceived by his lies and enslaved by their sin. We are to march out into his territory, taking ground. It has been said that good news is for sharing. Good news is for sharing because it's good news. Share it. Don't keep it to yourself. And so it is with the gospel. In Romans 10 and verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writes, How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? The they in this passage is referring to those who are still in captivity to sin, still living in the dominion of Satan. How can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet. The song Henry selected for us there had that verse in it about our feet to be swift and beautiful for thee. How fitting. Swift and beautiful feet. Who of you has beautiful feet? Anyone? Would anyone say they have beautiful feet? Uh, What's the term for that? Uh, Like after a pedicure, right? Pedicure, that's where you get your feet all 
polished up and, and they, they look all beautiful, right? Now, that's not what the gospel is talking about here, is it, right? Beautiful feet. For in fact, in, in ancient days, we, we have to remember this, in the time that the Bible was written, there was no satellite, there was no internet, there was no instant communication. Communication was all done primarily by messengers who carried the message on their two feet. Okay, so that was the primary method of all communication in ancient times, messengers carrying a, a letter, mail, or even just verbally on their two feet as they carried it with them. And so, these messengers, if a king would send them out, especially with an urgent message to someone in a distant place, they would go out swiftly. They wouldn't be taking their time. They wouldn't be dawdling around. They had an urgent message, which meant that they had to go at maximum speed. And so in ancient times, there were professional messengers. Just as we may have professional mail couriers today, they had professional messengers who were the marathon runners of the day, who could travel long distances, doggedly, hour after hour, with incredible endurance, incredible cardio, as we would call it today, to just keep running without stopping. Now, these messages, when sent out by kings or rulers, were often a matter of life and death, and they could carry both good news or bad news. For instance, in the story of Job, we read that it was messengers that delivered the bad news to Job. And we read that one after the other, messengers came to Job telling him that his herds had been stolen, his servants had been put to death by the sword, and that finally it was messengers who came and told him that a, a wind, a great wind had collapsed the house upon his children, and they were all killed. Devastating news, all brought by messengers. Now, in times of war, the same thing could happen. The messenger would arrive from the battlefield bearing either the good news of victory or devastating news of defeat. So, can you imagine the anticipation and the trepidation that people would have when word got around that from a far distant battlefield, the messenger has now arrived with news, telling them what the fate will be. One such story comes from ancient Greece. In this next slide, we see a depiction of a man named Pheidippides. And Pheidippides is running. He's one of those professional messengers. Now, in the year 490 BC, King Darius of Persia invaded Greece and threatened the city of Athens. So the Athenians sent their champion day-long runner named Pheidippides to run to the city of Sparta to ask for their help. Now, as incredible as this sounds, Pheidippides ran for two days and two nights the almost 150 miles to Sparta. Now, as an interesting side note here, People wonder when they read this, this history if this is just a legend, you know, because no one can actually run for two days and two nights without collapsing. But there's actually an event today called the Sparta Run, where runners train to do exactly this. And yes, it is humanly possible, though it seems superhuman. In fact, the runners who do this say that they learn to sleep run. They essentially get into an almost comatose state where their body just keeps going, but their mind is so zoned out that they come and go, but they keep running down the road. Isn't that wild? People can actually train to be able to do this. And so Pheidippides did. He ran 150 miles nonstop. 
And he arrived only to be told that the Spartans were unwilling to respond to Athens' call for help until the moon was full because their religious law forbade them to go to battle until it was a full moon had passed. And that wouldn't come for another six days, which would be too late. And so, again, after a brief catnap, Pheidippides, he, he fuels up, he eats what he can, he has a catnap, he gets up before the sunrise, and he then incredibly sets out on the return 150-mile trip back to Athens, where he then informs them that Sparta would not be coming in time to help them. And so the, the massive Persian army has already landed on the Greek coast. They've set up their encampment on the plain of Marathon. It's about 25 miles away from Athens, and Pheidippides then joins the famous 10,000 Athenian warriors who, though vastly outnumbered, they take the initiative and they charge down upon the Persian army there on the plain of Marathon. They, they win a great victory in this battle. And after the battle, Pheidippides was then asked to once again take the news of their victory back to Athens. And so immediately he throws down his weapons and he begins to run the 25 miles nonstop to the city of Athens where the now thoroughly exhausted man runs into the city and proclaims in Greek, Nike, Nike, Naniki, Cayman, which translated into English means victory, victory, rejoice, we conquer. And then as legend has it, he fell to the ground and died. Pheidippides had run his final race, and he has since been immortalized in history as the first marathon runner, upon whose seemingly superhuman exploits our modern marathon races are now based. Pheidippides was also part of the inspiration for why the athletic footwear company that you may own a pair of, Nike Shoes, Nike chose their name partially because of Pheidippides' triumphant cry of Nike, Nike, which means victory. Now, historians aren't certain of what type of footwear Pheidippides wore, though we can be certain that he wasn't wearing a nice pair of Nike runners. In fact, as we see in the picture, it's quite possible that he actually ran barefoot, as many messengers of that time did. You can imagine how thick his soles were, the calluses on those. But whatever the case was, Pheidippides had beautiful feet. Pheidippides had beautiful feet. For truly, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, most people would agree that we are living through very trying times in our world today. And the fact is that there are people all around us, all around us right now, who are desperately looking for good news. We are surrounded with bad news and we are bombarded by it daily and hourly. People are desperate for good news, my friends. Real good news. Something that they can hold on to. And they need something more than just a platitude of, you know, just, just hang in there and things will get better eventually. They need more than that. What they need to hear more than anything else is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear that Jesus loves them, that he willingly died for them to forgive their sins, that he desires to give them peace with God, the Father, and that the free gift of eternal life is theirs through faith 
so that they can be forever with him in heaven, having received the gift of eternal life. This is what people need to hear. Truly, more than anything else, this is the good news that all people need to hear. And for this reason, spreading the gospel is as urgent today as it has ever been before. For today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Because the reality is that for many, tomorrow will be too late. That is why the word always says, today is the day of salvation. If you hear the word today, repent and believe the gospel. Not tomorrow, not the day after, not I'll think about it, I might, I'll get around to it before I die. No, today. And so it is the same for the messenger of the gospel. Today is the day to bring it out, not tomorrow, not the day after, not next year. Today, the matter is always urgent because for many, tomorrow will be too late. So the question is, will we be the messenger to bring the good news with us? Will we be those willing, like Pheidippides, to run a marathon in order to bring the gospel to a person who has yet to hear it? And if long-distance running isn't your thing, don't worry. (laughs) I have more good news for you. You don't have to run 25 miles nonstop to bring someone the gospel. You don't have to do it. Now, if some of you like long-distance running, bless you, that's great. But you don't have to do that to bring someone the gospel. In fact, they might be just across your street. They might be at your job on Monday morning. They could be at your friend's house on Friday evening or at your next family gathering on Sunday afternoon. Maybe today. It could be working for a week at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp this summer. There are boys and girls who are going to be coming who need to hear the good news. Maybe God's calling some of you to be those who would bring it. It could be in teaching a Sunday school class in our basement on Sunday mornings. My friends, the opportunities to bring the gospel to someone are nearly limitless if we just look for them. They're all around us. We're surrounded by them. The opportunities are abundant, my friends. They're abundant. They're everywhere. And this is why Paul also tells us to make the most of every opportunity. Because the opportunities are so abundant. We are called to make the most of every opportunity. And we have to always remember this as well. Our job is simply to deliver the good news. What the hearer does with it is up to them. That is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to bring it with us. Pastor John Piper made this statement about sharing the gospel of peace with others. He said that our personal sense of the reality of Christ would be so deep and confident and satisfying that we could scarcely keep from commending him to others. If Christ is real in us, we can scarcely keep from commending him to others, from telling about him to others. It is both the reality of the peace of Christ in our lives that causes us to stand firm, and it is also the reality of the peace of Christ in our lives that causes us to go out and to share it with others. So I challenge and encourage each and every one of us today. Fit your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Lace up those shoes of the gospel to both enable you to stand firm and to bring the good news to others, that someday it may be said of each one of us, 
You, you, and you, you all have beautiful feet because it was through you that the gospel message was brought to me. May it be so. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to bring us the gospel of peace, to be our peace. And that through faith in you, Lord Jesus, we have received peace with the Father, that our sins have been covered, that we have our feet fitted with a firm and sure foundation, that no matter what Satan throws our way, we can stand our ground. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, that this is not only for standing firm, but it's also for moving forward, for taking ground in the enemy's territory, that with our feet fitted firmly with the gospel of peace, that we are prepared to go out and to bring this message to those who have yet to hear the good news so that they too may have the opportunity to hear and by the work of your spirit be convicted to repent and believe just as we have so that they too can have those shoes put on their feet. And so we pray, Father, that you would bless each one of us, guide us by your spirit, that, Lord, if you're tapping us on the shoulder, that there's any opportunity that we've been ignoring where you're saying, step into it, trust me, I can speak through you. I can work through you. Give us the grace and the courage to simply do so and leave the results in your hands. So bless our witness personally and together that you would do a good work through us as we raise that cry, Nike, Nike, victory, victory, through the gospel we conquer. In Jesus' name we pray.